0: Well, while we're situating ourselves up here, welcome to Upbeat Live, and say hello to composer Christopher Rouse and organist Paul Jacobs. There okay. and, and there will be another special guest even a little later in the proceedings. This is, this is historic for me because every, every visiting Artistic celebrity on the program tonight. Dvorak's folks sent his regrets. <laughs> I wasn't too pleased about that. But anyway, oh, oh, okay. So <laughs> I feel like I'm dead here. So Do you far, you want for to share with you? no, that's okay. For starters, it's great. It's great to have you both here. And I, I was thinking that where I really wanted to start was by by asking about each of you about a pivotal moment in your career, and and starting with Christopher Rouse. The morning that you wake up and find out you've won a Pulitzer Prize for music, is it a different morning, or do you have to wait till the next day?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, I found out late afternoon of that day. And uh, yeah, I, I found out that I'd gotten it. And I'd finished teaching at the Eastman School for that day. So I drove home. Everything was very peaceful when I left Eastman. But when I got home, the phone wouldn't stop ringing. And it did that for several days. But as a colleague of mine says, you know, you're You're famous for about two weeks, and then you're taking out the garbage again. So, and that's pretty much the way it is.
0: Now, as as do you know that you're a finalist? Do you already know? No, you don't know at all. It it just it just comes out of nowhere. It's out of the blue. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. But I mean, obviously, there is some residual effect to have that attached to your to your name. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It usually
1: is the lead sentence in, in the bios whenever somebody writes a uh-huh. blurb about me. That's usually yeah. the first thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: It, it sounds a lot better than the line you usually see, which is uh, internationally renowned, critically acclaimed. Oh, yes, yeah. right. That's, that's right. But that's, that's more real. Now, Paul, Paul and I go back a long way. We've been, we've been running into each other on a regular basis. Uh, for you, uh, the year was 2000, okay? And, and uh, 1750 was the year that Bach died. Uh, 1750, by the way, is the year that music history textbooks conveniently tell you was when the Baroque period ended because it's a convenient year and it's an absolute lie. But anyway, we won't get into that. But what we will get into is that 250 years later, uh, commemorations of, of Bach, a big Bach year. You were 23 years old at the time, is that correct?
2: I was 23. Okay.
0: And you decided you would perform the complete
2: organ works of Bach. And how
0: long does it take to perform the complete
2: organ works of Bach? About 18 hours and 20 minutes.
0: Okay. You didn't have anything better to do? Nothing better to do. So uh, how long did you prepare for this, for this kind of thing?
2: Well, I I guess up until that point, my entire life, uh, I didn't have a run through, I can tell you that. Um, (laughs) But the music, it was interesting. During that marathon performance, the only thing that I had to eat was one cup of chocolate pudding and bottles of water. The music was the sustenance.
0: Well that's pretty much all that Bach ate. (laughs) He was a big chocolate pudding guy himself. And so so eighteen hours and this is continuous. You started what what time of day did you start?
2: I started at six in the morning Uh and concluded at about 12.20 12.20 the following day. They were very brief breaks, nothing longer really than two or three minutes.
0: Okay. And what did that mean for your, for your career and your visibility? Was this, this become something that people around the world were, were, were fascinated by?
2: They certainly were. I wasn't even thinking of it that way and I don't think I would ever do this sort of thing again but at age 23 I had the stamina, I had the energy, I had the drive to do something uh, kind of off the wall like this and, and I don't regret it.
0: So I'm thinking that's, that's probably, would that be the organ version of the marathon? Yes. Because I would. think that if, if you're a pianist, it's the Beethoven 32 piano sonatas, right? That's right. And if you're an organist, yeah. it's all the Bach, yeah. Yes. Okay, now I will come back. I want to talk about, about other things about your early lives and your beginnings and how you became what you were. But I do want to talk first and foremost about this piece tonight. And uh, the Philharmonic was kind enough to give me a score to peruse. And the first thing I'd like to talk about is the choice of instrumentation for this. Which, if you told me, hey, they're doing an organ concerto, can you guess the instrumentation? I wouldn't have. So let's start with that.
1: Well, in my old age here, I've learned not to write for instruments I don't need. And because there are so many woodwind stops and woodwind colors available on the organ, and because the woodwind instruments are generally... Uh, the ones with the smallest voices, the ones most easily drowned out, I decided just not to have any woodwinds, uh, except for a bass clarinet and a contrabassoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everything else is there, full
0: brass, percussion, and strings. It's amazing. And in terms of... Now, have you written much for organ? Because, I mean, I think, as as far as I, I can see, the two most exotic things, actually, the three most exotic things to write for, and I know you wrote a wonderful concerto that Sharon Isbin premiered, the Concerto Gaudí for guitar. That would be one that's sort of a special interest group, I would say, if I can borrow a phrase. Uh, another one would be the harp, mm-hmm. especially. And and as far as I'm concerned, organ also represents, you know, a very special choice because typically writing orchestral works, that's it's an option, but it's not a uh, frequently exercised one. So. Have you had other experiences in writing for organ?
1: Well, many years ago, I wrote a a piece for solo organ, Uh which I euthanized uh, some time ago. It wasn't wasn't good enough. Um, So really, that was it, uh, except for this piece.
0: So when you euthanize an organ piece, does it go 32 feet under? (laughs) Ooh. Oh, tell me to stop, right? Oh, oh, that's... Oh, no. That was pretty good, <laughs> yeah, actually. thank you very much. That. Coming for you, that's pretty good. Okay, so you wrote the piece for Oregon. Is this a piece that was written in consultation at, at, at any point with, with Paul?
1: Uh, we didn't actually spend an enormous amount of time talking together. What I usually do is, is write the piece and then ask the person for whom I've written it to tell me if I need to make any changes. And there was... I think a passage uh, in this piece, about eight bars or so. Yeah, not very much. That I needed to simplify a little bit. I'd I'd forgotten that they don't have 15 fingers, and uh, so I needed to to redo that, but uh, otherwise that was it.
0: But then again, they do have two feet. Yes, they do. That's something that a (laughs) pianist will not offer you, at least not any usable way. Which which gets me to another question about working this out, and I'm looking through the score, I'm wondering, the engineering, the balance, and the, and the connection between orchestra and organ when you do have those pedals? And is that, what, what's the thought process in terms of integrating that with the, with the low end of the orchestra?
1: Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the organ, of course, can play lower than any orchestral instrument can. Uh, but sometimes if you have the low strings or a tuber or something on a very low note, and the organ is playing the same note, the organ provides an extra degree of weight and depth to the sound.
0: Yeah, which gets us to another big question. This is something that Paul and I have had a chance to talk about in the past, is that if you write a piano concerto, any orchestra, any concert hall, the pianos will have a similar sound and similar capability as will violins and cellos. But with an organ, Every organ is different, and I know that, that Paul comes in, and uh, even if it's, a, if it's an organ that you've already made friends with in the past, you have to have a little sit-down with the organ and, and figure out registration. So to what extent are you dictating or suggesting what the organ sounds that he's using should be?
1: Really not an enormous amount. I, uh, I trust Paul to, to, to know what the right choices of stops would be. And I think there maybe have been a few little things where I might have said, let's, little, let's goose this line up a little bit. But other than that, I, I leave that to, to Paul.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I would say unless the composer is an organist, it's better to leave the art of registration, that is to say, the choices of stops to the organists. And Chris has been, I think, um, he's honored that. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, As you mentioned, every organ is different, so if you get too specific with exactly what stops you want, uh, this organ may have that selection of stops, but the next one may not, so it's, I think, best to to leave things uh, uh, to be reasonably spontaneous in that regard.
0: And Paul, you and I have talked in the past about the fact that there's a whole spectrum of specificity on on the part of composers. And if you do have a guy, if you're a 19th century Frenchman who plays the
2: organ, is he going to overspecify generally or not? Yes, the French tend to be the most fastidious when it comes to um, uh, being indicating in the score which stops to use. Uh, but the Germans, the rest of the Europeans, certainly the Americans, you get a dynamic marking, generally speaking, and um, it's up to the organist.
0: Now I want to and now I want to go back to early life, uh, with this with this sort of reflection that uh, a violinist is here soloing, and you know that when they were three or four years old, somebody handed them a violin. Uh, uh, same thing with pianists; they're four years old, they sat them down in front of a piano, got them lessons. I do not believe that when you were four years old, your parents said, hey, guess what we got you for Christmas. (laughs) Nor do I believe that when you were four years old, your parents said, this is called manuscript paper and this is called a, a pen and why don't you write music? So the question to both of you is, how and when did what you do start?
2: Well, I <clears throat> you have to be tall enough to reach the pedals on the organ. So I began initially with the piano, age 5, 6 years old, and uh, when I I guess beyond that, I would slip to the organ gallery at the local church when the organist was playing the postlude. Sister Helen was her name. And Sister Helen was not a very good organist but at a young age i didn't know the difference and i was entranced by not only the, the music emanating from this machine but also the complexity of it and i knew that that was something that i wanted to do
0: and how did, and so did you sort of wait till sister
2: helen took her break and sneak in sister helen was retired oh and another organist took over one yeah. who was trained properly and he was very supportive of That's young good. talent, uh, an aspiring young organist.
0: And the, I guess the, the interesting thing about being an organist is you don't have one at home to practice on.
2: No, I still do a lot of practice on the piano. Really? OK. Uh, I, I learn a lot of my organ music on the piano, okay. but at some point, of course. How do you
0: practice the pedal parts? Air pedal? Uh, just about, really? yes. Really? OK. OK. <laughs> OK. And OK, so com- composing, it's something that you know, no parent says, hey, why don't you try composing? How did it happen?
1: Um, well, I was six years old, and uh, I was born in 1949, so uh, at six, the popular music that I was hearing that was new was Little Richard and Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis Presley and such. And so I was listening to that, and my mother had a recording of the Beethoven Fifth Symphony. Of course it had to be the Beethoven Fifth Symphony. Um, and she put that on, and it was just like uh, uh, the sky opening up for me. It was such a revelation. And that's when I decided. I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write music.
0: Okay, so Rock Around the Clock took a backseat to that.
1: Uh, yeah, although I still love.
0: I still love. Okay, the, a- what's not to love? What's yeah, not to love? Did, and did you ever play organ in a rock group? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> uh, are you available this weekend? <laughs> I got, got an opening at Pacoima. Okay, a nice, a nice gig. Well, thank you so much for our guests, uh, Christopher Rouse and Paul Jacobs, for joining us out here. Looking forward to hearing your combined work. Thank you. And now, part two, I said this is a rare pleasure to welcome all of our visiting dignitaries. Please welcome our guest conductor, David Robertson. That's good. Howdy. Okay.
3: All right. Thank you. So, what's your history with rock and roll? <laughs> I don't know. I did lights for the shows as a seventh grader. I okay. Think, you know, okay.
0: So. Now, the, the first question I got for you, uh, I, know, I know a lot about your resume, your achievements, your appointments and everything, uh, but I want to focus on, on one particular pair of occurrences. You were born in Santa Monica and you studied at the Royal Academy.
3: In how, London. Okay, yes.
0: And how, how does that happen?
3: How do, you, how do you get from there to there? Santa Monica Unified School Districts has historically had an absolutely spectacular arts program, and the music side of it has brought forth a huge number of talented individuals who really look to that as the sort of starting point for their experience. Um, they have a concert at the Santa Monica Auditorium every year where... Um, elementary school, junior high school, and high school groups all perform choral and sort of, and so it's a long concert, you know, it's, it's one of those things where as a parent you think, really, they sat through that? They really did love me. Um, but I, the first time I conducted the Cleveland Orchestra, um, the legendary first trumpet of Cleveland, Mike Sachs came up to me and he said, Mr. Robertson, when I was in seventh grade, you played the horn solo from The Firebird of Stravinsky, and it was so beautiful, and I've always wanted to tell you. You know, and it's, it's this kind of a thing that Santa Monica brings about. Um, at the same time, I was lucky enough to be studying theater in Santa Monica, and of course, um, Los Angeles has a fantastic theater tradition, both in live theater, but also, of course, in television and film. And I had to try and decide between the two. And one of the things that was um, very enticing about London had to do with the fact that I could do a triple major, which was very difficult in American conservatories—composition, horn, and conducting—as well as the fact that there was this incredible theater scene, and so that was kind of what, what took me over there. And um, you know, and the rest is is some sort of history.
0: And that wow, were there many Americans studying there?
3: No, at the time it was not a terribly you know. London was was um, very much. This was 1976, and you could see. Um, various aspects of of their empirical reach. Uh-huh. So we had um, some Australians who were there, there were people from the Indian subcontinent, there were some people from the Caribbean, um, there were people from various parts of Africa, but, um, but the Americans that were there, there, I think there were two or three others while I was there, but it was really quite thin on the ground.
0: I've never had a chance to ask anybody this question, but are there any particular I'll put it this way, peculiarities of the English music education system that, that, that stand out? Any things that they do significantly differently than,
3: than we do here in the States? No, I don't think so. But one of the things that you you do note when you go into a different educational system is that there are there are lots of things that start very early. I lived for a while in Germany and I have two um, boys who were born in Frankfurt. And so I got to see what happens at a very early age with regard to, to how people are um, um, just invited to participate in the learning experience and I think this is one of the things where you see the culture of a land really at at its at its birth because this is how how do you treat an idea how do you treat the notion of what performing is what uh, receptivity is to um, performing arts how you treat the notion of where sport um, has a place in people's education um, the idea of um, separating people at a, v- a very early age and putting them in a track towards learning one kind of thing or learning another kind of thing—all of these—all of these aspects have to do with, you know, what 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 you see. And I'm not sure that I would be able to summarize um, Great Britain. I think when I when I went there, the Royal Academy of Music was still relatively um, in the 1960s in terms of its uh, training, and so I had to actually fight at one point when I gave up the horn to still be able to take the conducting and composition. Um, and so that was, that was interesting to see, that there, was, there were certain sort of ideas about what you should do, and those were, those were relatively, um, relatively firm.
0: Yeah, I wanna come back around to uh, youth and your encouragement in those directions, but uh, since you mentioned it, uh, you mentioned three things. You mentioned horn, composition, and conducting which makes you a member of a club of which I know at least one other member, Esifeca Salonin. And uh, I know that he was studying horn uh, at the Sibelius Academy. Uh, He was a member of the group of uh, composers, including Magnus Lindbergh. Uh, And that the the way he tells the story was they they agree that if they're going to get their pieces performed, one of them was going to have to be a conductor. So did horn and composition for you both proceed conducting?
3: No, I was a little bit like Paul. I had um, a a fascinating experience. I went to Malibu Park Junior High School, which is way out, so me coming into the Philharmonic to watch concerts was an hour-long journey one way. You're lucky, today it's three hours. Yeah, that's it. No, I know PCH very well. Um, But the thing that was interesting was um, that We had this great music program, there was a music teacher when I first got into 7th grade, so I was 12, and he was frequently ill, and that in fact was his last year, he retired after that, and so they would send substitute teachers every time that he was ill. And I cannot imagine a worse fate for a substitute teacher than to have an entire class of 12, 13 and 14 year olds with instruments for 45 minutes. And and most of the men came in and they would try and conduct and we would have great fun and, and people would switch instruments, you know, playing things they don't play. And it was pandemonium, which is absolutely delightful to junior high school students. And then we had one substitute teacher who was much smarter than the average cut. And she came in and the first thing she said was, does anybody want to conduct? And my hand shot up and then I conducted the whole rehearsal, you know, for 45 minutes. And of course... We knew the music, so we just had fun playing it. And of course, people had to go back to the instruments they played, because I knew what they played. Um, And so it was very good. What I did not know is that she immediately went back into Santa Monica and told the music side of the Board of Education, hey, there's this kid in Malibu who could conduct the whole rehearsal. And so the next week when the teacher was back, um, he was saying, I heard that you did this, and I started getting regular opportunities to conduct. So for me, the, the three were really kind of connected up at the same time. And, and, and so, you know, so, so I was conducting before I went through puberty, which perhaps explains my podium manner. Um, you know. There's something to watch for. Okay.
0: Uh, I can't even begin to imagine. Do you remember the first piece you conducted at that rehearsal?
3: Well, I don't remember that, but when I was 13, I got to conduct in the concert um, a, an arrangement of When Johnny Comes Marching Home. So that ties in well with the Ives this ties evening. Very nice. It's not quoted, but yeah. it's close enough.
0: So let's, I do want to talk about Ives, but I've got to drop one more name because I want to know more. And that is, I know part of your, part of your whole experience involves Pierre Boulez. And I know uh, Boulez was known to many of us here very fondly, very much involved with the LA Philharmonic for a number of years. I got to meet him on several occasions. What,
3: what was the, the association and what did that mean to you? Well, of course, when I was... Um, here and I finally got my driver's license so my poor parents could rest at the end of a long day of work rather than drive their crazy uh, 14, 15 year old down to the the music center. Um, I actually got to see Pierre Boulez conduct on a number of occasions and I was just fascinated by that and fascinated by um, his compositions when they were done as part of the series. And then I watched him when he went to London, he was he had finished as BBC Symphony Music Director but he still came and guest conducted quite often. And I would always go to his concerts and then um, went to a number of his rehearsals. What was kind of interesting was that I was always a little bit too shy to speak to him. And he was very nice, he would come in and see me at rehearsal after, you know, the next day and say, oh, good morning. You know, but I, you know, would, you know, and that was it, I was just too starstruck. And I, I learned a tremendous amount watching him uh, rehearse. and. Then we need to fast forward about eight years or so. I was doing a concert in Paris at the radio of a, a composer that I believe has been played here in Los Angeles, Philippe Manori. and he um, was someone that Boulez knew very well and supported. And this was a piece that was an hour and fifteen minutes long, and the orchestra is divided into four separate groups, and you've got four vocal soloists, and they're electronics. And there's one part where you, you know, I use a baton, but you have to put your baton down and conduct with different time signatures with the two hands. So I did my Boulez imitation and that was all fine and the concert was great and then I couldn't believe it when all of a sudden Pierre Boulez walked into the, to my dressing room and in fact um, what was interesting was that he had come to see the composer and at that point that was when he saw me conduct for the first time and six months later he called me into his office and said I would like to offer you the position of music director of the Ensemble Intercontemporain." which I then accepted and, and stayed with that group for nine years. So we worked quite closely together on a lot of things. Did you find that,
0: that even as, as a young boy that you had an affinity and an open mind for contemporary music?
3: You know, I'm not sure, because I come from a family where um, those were not things that we had at home, and I remember I still look at a program and say, hmm, what would my you know, dear deceased mother think if she were in that concert, and I think, no, that's maybe a little bit too hardcore, let's pull this one out and put another piece in, um, but at the same time, it's always struck me that um, there are people writing music at present, and they are our contemporaries, and so they experience the same things that we experience, whether that's the, the recent election, or whether that's the idea of, of what you read in the newspaper, or whether it's um, a You know, a particularly um, tragic assassination, um, whatever it might be, or even an extraordinary joy that, that comes. There is this sense that they are processing these things as well. And so, for me, the important connection is the one to make between the people who are writing and living with us and therefore making a bridge to the people who were writing in the past and seeing that there isn't actually, in human expressive terms, any difference. And one of the things that I found the most fascinating about Boulez was that I thought he would absolutely not share this point of view. And that was absolutely not the case. There were certain composers that he didn't like, but any time you get a composer who is a performer, they will have certain sort of segments of the music world that are off limits to them just for reasons of personal taste and, and their preferences. But the interesting thing was to find that his knowledge of music history was so in-depth. Um, does anybody here know that Karl Maria von Weber wrote piano sonatas?
0: And that he also had very big thumbs.
3: But. But is any one of you ready to sort of talk about which ones they are, how many numbers, and talk about their keys and all of that sort of thing? And that is what Pierre could do at the drop of a hat and not think that it was something remarkable. So, yes, I would understand if he said, yes, the Beethoven the Appassionata sonata, but when he says, well, Weber's third piano uh, sonata has this uh, fascinating form in the last movement, and it's like, I didn't know he wrote them. You know, so there's this kind of connection. And so it's, you know, it's been a, something that I really enjoy doing, putting together programs like the one this evening where the Ives and the Dvorak actually talk to each other. And there are connections between the way Ives has put together his music and the way that Dvorak has put together his music. And while I could describe many of those, what I think is wonderful about the concert experience as opposed to any other form of listening to music, either on um, a device connected to the internet or at, at home with your uh, collection of CDs or vinyl or even on the radio is that the concert experience allows us to suddenly be in the same room like a fantastic moment in a gallery where three or four or possibly five different works of art are close enough that they actually begin to speak and their proximity creates a reality and a way to view and understand human experience that nothing else can. And maybe this comes from my love of theater that when you go to the theater, you may not necessarily like the work you may disagree with some of the things the playwright has said, but you engage with it in a way that is not just pleasurable, I want to watch people walking around on the stage and saying things, you know, but, but rather that, that there's a kind of, there's a sadness in some of the um, three pieces for orchestra, particularly the first, um, the St. Gaudens uh, monument, which allies very much with the kind of sadness that surprises us in the Dvorak when it comes in, not only in its placement within the context of a movement, but in its intensity. And I think that that what happens is when you put these works together, and I've never done the Ives and the the, uh, Dvorak together on a program, all of a sudden they reveal different things in the other, and the same thing of having the Rouse on the program where there is this wonderful sort of love in Chris's music of both you know, chords where you really just kind of feel as though he got up one day and said I want something nasty and then (laughs) out comes this really whoa type of chord and then at the same time this incredible love of the pure joy of a major triad, which is of course a series of tones that the physics of sound give us and that our ears have developed to be able to hear. And so it's, it's this combination that you hear there that suddenly when you're in the Dvorak and there's some of the chords that are really complex, you can come back to, to the Dvorak after the Rouse and you don't hear it the same way. And for me, that's what, what makes a uh, concert program, such a remarkable thing, and why, for me, they're they're not repeatable.
0: I, I'm particularly taken by what you said about the, the Dvorak and the Ives speaking to each other, because what re- uh, immediately pops into my mind is that when Dvorak is absorbing what will become the New World Symphony, by that time Charles Ives is uh, 18 years old, and he obviously and and he has been absorbing this all along. Uh, the interesting thing about Three Places in New England, also uh, that we should mention. Uh, that Ives financed the premiere, and the conductor was someone else who has a very interesting connection, Nicholas Slonimsky. Anybody recognize the name of Nicholas Slonimsky? Lived here from 1964 until his death at age 101 in 1995. Uh, he is a one-of-a-kind, uh, as a writer, uh, conductor, and you owe it to yourself. If you want to buy one book on music, there's a book by Slonimsky called The Lectionary of Music. And it's basically, it's not a music dictionary. It's just a number of little articles on things of interest that he thinks are interesting, and he always knew what was interesting. So that's your book recommendation for tonight. Uh, and if you want other recommendations, write to me at the station, and I'll give you the whole uh, bibliography. But, but, but it, it's fascinating to, to see how everybody fits together, you know, but especially uh, the way you put it, that Ives and, and Dvorak, that they are connected in that way, and I, I, I see it, I hear it. And I'd like to thank you for joining us. David Robertson. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you.